My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 102, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 1 Samuel 13 and 14 and Psalm 58. 1 Samuel 13. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistines, outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul had attacked the Philistines' outpost, and now Israel had become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel, with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth Aven. When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offerings. Just as he finished making the offerings, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Geba and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah. In Benjamin, while the Philistines camped at Michmash, raiding parties went out from the Philistine camps in three detachments, one toward towards Ophrah in the vicinity of Shaul, another toward Beth Haran, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zebian, facing the wilderness. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel, because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plow points, mattocks, axes, sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plow points and mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. 
Now a detachment of Philistines had gone out to the pass of Michmash. One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his younger armor bearers, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Megron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother, Itub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sanaa. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Gabah. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come on now, then we will come over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come for you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his arm bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah and Benjamin saw that the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time, it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel, and the battle moved on beyond beth Aven. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of his soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. This is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brighten when I tasted a little of this honey. How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? 
That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder, and taking sheep, cattle, and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them, together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, Go out among the men and tell them, Each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, Let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, Let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, Shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come here, all of you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there. I and Jonathan, my son, will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thummim. Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, and the men were cleared, Saul said. Cast the lot toward me and Jonathan, my son, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, may God deal with you, but be it ever so severely if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die, he who had brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. The name of his older daughter was Merab, and that of the younger was Michael. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abinir, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul, there was a bitter war with the Philistines, and wherever Saul saw mighty or brave men, he took him into his service. Psalm 58. Do you rulers indeed speak justly? Do you judge people with equity? No, in your heart you devise injustice, and your hands mete out violence on the earth. Even with birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. Their venom is like the venom of a snake, like that of a cobra that has stopped its ears. That will not heed the tune of the charmer, however skillful the enchanter may be. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God, Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let the arrows fall short. May they be like slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the heat of the thorns, whether they be green or dry, the wicked will be swept away. 
The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Then people will say, surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. Father Mike Schmitz describes Saul's Achilles heel as vanity. And what's vanity? He cares more for what other people think than what God is telling him to do. In chapter 13, we see why Saul's descendants do not end up getting to inherit the kingdom or the kingship. Samuel tells him to wait to give the sacrifice, and Saul does not. We read how Saul wins the battle his own way, and it becomes clear his lack of self-awareness is a problem. It leads to flagrant disobedience, and Samuel prophesies that his kingship will end with him. This isn't to say that his son doesn't play a special role in the kingdom, as we will learn later. Jonathan isn't perfect, but he is a pretty cool character, if you ask me, and Jonathan is Saul's son. What's interesting is that Father Mike Schmitz points out that Saul doesn't quit the mission based on this message from Samuel that his son isn't going to inherit the kingdom. Instead, Saul goes on to fight for Israel against the Philistines and their other adversaries. And at the end of chapter 13, we note there are no swords or spears. They're fighting with their farming equipment because the Philistines had deprived them from such things, blacksmiths in particular, except King Saul and his son Jonathan. They had weapons. And then in chapter 14, Father Mike Schmitz points out how Jonathan begins to reveal his character. But first notice how Samuel had prophesied that the next king would be after God's own heart. And soon we will meet the young one who will become the king, David. And the young king, we will learn, is willing to fight when no one else is willing in the infamous David and Goliath story. And here in this story, Jonathan is willing to go up and fight a battle. No one is willing to fight. He is of the same heart. And these two, David and Jonathan, become best friends. Father Mike Schmitz points to this story when asking why were David and Jonathan such good friends? They had the same heart. They were not hiding in holes. They were both willing to fight the adversary, even when it seemed to the layperson that the odds were stacked against them. Perhaps they knew their representative role in the battle and that it is God who is the architect of victory, and their willingness as unlikely candidates would only put God on further display if and when victory is won over the adversary. At the end of this story is tragedy, when Saul makes an oath about not eating, and if anyone breaks this rash vow, they will be killed. And Jonathan doesn't hear this and unintentionally breaks this vow, and Saul says he has to kill him, his own son. Doesn't this seem to create like an echo in your head back to the story in Judges where Jephthah, the judge, says the first person who comes through the door, he will kill somehow in honor of God, which is not in keeping with anything we've read about in the past. And that person happens to be his daughter. Like, what kind of a vow are these, right? These seemingly arbitrary and maybe a bit pagan sort of practices. But I don't want to be too judgmental. How many times do we make an oath or some sort of promise in our head to try and control, respond, or decide the next steps or the future instead of going to God in prayer? Yet, the people stand up for Jonathan to Saul, stating that Jonathan is the reason for their victory, and I think it's so meaningful and cool how it's like the concept of ransom, the people ransomed Saul for his own son, Jonathan. It ends with what Father Mike Schmitz poses as an interesting question. Why do you think Saul is collecting mighty men? Is it for his own reputation and safety, or is it in defense of Israel? 
I find this to be an interesting question of motivation, which drives purpose and decision-making. I liken it to this question, which I often reflect on, and that is, what is the purpose of business? Most of us work for a business or we're trying to create a business. Even if it's a nonprofit business, business is like this web of things, skills, tools, processes all around us. So what's the purpose of business? What is business for? I think some answer with, well, profit, which by definition means you're trying to take advantage or gain more than you're giving. So the purpose of business in that case is to take advantage in the exchange. Another way to view it is that the purpose of business is a value exchange. It's a a sober sense of your own strengths and weaknesses in the context of a community or marketplace and considering the opportunities and threats and exchanging your strength, skills, resources for those you may not have but need to sustain and flourish for your family, employees, partners, and society. I can tell you this, business is different when the purpose is profit than if it's value exchange. The purpose of a business, I don't think, I just don't think it's profit in my opinion. I think profit is an outcome of doing business well, and it's entirely dependent on the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Yes, there is a natural pattern and influence we can study and best practices that tend to lead towards higher or lower value exchange. But if we seek to take more than we give, where does that leave us? Where does that leave others? Where does that lead our relationship with God and his creation? For me, the purpose of business and my attitude as a consumer is to pursue a fair and thoughtful value exchange. I think the motivation which drives our purpose, even in business or as a consumer, should not be divorced from our practice of knowing God and participating in church and ministry. I'm convicted that we need to be God-centered and focused in all areas of our life. Easier said than done. But like the founder of the Service Master said, Bill Pollard, in his book, The Soul of the Firm, we are all in a process of being and becoming. The question is, what are we being and becoming? For whom? And why? These things are all tied together. So hopefully we continue to learn from all the characters in these stories and reflect on our own hearts and how we make decisions and where we place God in them. Even if we aren't fully developed yet, there's so much still to learn. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.